Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American, born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. Since October 7th, the national mood of Israeli society has been like a roller coaster. The majority of Israelis had not experienced a national tragedy of this magnitude. October 7th is and will be defined for a long time to come as a watershed in the short history of modern Israel. I reached out to accomplished colleagues and friends that know the Israeli mindset well to ask them about Israeli society post-October 7th. So my first guest is Professor Gil Troy. Gil Troy is a leading Zionist activist and an award-winning American presidential historian. He is, most recently, the editor of the new three-volume set, Theodor Herzl, Zionist Writings, the inaugural publication of the Library of the Jewish People. Welcome, Gil Troy. Several questions I would like to ask you. First of all, how would you personally describe the national mood in Israel as of now? So I guess the question would be, are we comparing to October 6th or October 8th? Uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine, uh, and we were remembering just that funereal sense, that heaviness of the first weeks uh, after October 7th in Jerusalem, far away from the front, but just that that awfulness. And so in a strange way, we're far better than we were. We've returned to normal to a certain extent, but it's normal with an asterisk. It's normal with a cloud always hanging over us. Uh, and today happened to be, you know, a beautiful day. But every time you see an old friend, like when uh, I chat with you for the first time in a long time, anytime you check and say, how are you? You realize the stupidity of the question and then the 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 the, the, the fact that we're really living this very, very strange reality. Okay, I'm going to get into some more details with you, really, to try to gauge you on what you think um, and, and your expertise of Israeli society. There are voices in Israel that are calling for an immediate hostage deal, even if it means stopping the war altogether. And then there are other voices that say, no, no way. I mean, we're not stopping the war. And if it takes, if the deal is, you know, releasing all the hostages for stopping the war, then we got to continue the war. How do you gauge the issue among your friends, colleagues, etc.? Look, it's an incredibly painful issue. And in many ways, it's been a one-sided debate because how dare any of us who are not in the position of the 136 families of the hostages or even the 240 families of the hostages from from October 7th, how dare any of us judge? How dare any of us say, you should do this, you should do that? But on the other hand, affects us all. And what's really interesting is that if you watch the media conversation, and if you just listen to the debate, because of that one-sidedness, you would think that there's a very strong consensus, do anything possible to free the hostages. But uh, the JPPI, the Jewish People's Policy Institute, with which I'm affiliated, and a couple of other polling institutions have done polls showing that, in fact, most Israelis, if given a, a binary choice, right, everybody wants a win-win. They want to bring the hostages home yesterday, and they want to win yesterday. But given a choice between eliminating Hamas, to whatever that means, and freeing the hostages, the majority wants the elimination of Hamas only because they understand that if we give in now, Hezbollah will try to kidnap more hostages, Hamas may try to kidnap more hostages, it'll just be never-ending. 
But it's very important for people to understand that when Israelis say, we prioritize, when you give me this binary choice, freeing the hostages, uh, you know, winning over freeing the hostages, it doesn't mean that they don't mourn every single day that we live in a crazy world where 240 people, including babies, including Holocaust survivors, were kidnapped. Where young people also who don't deserve to be kidnapped were kidnapped. It doesn't mean that there isn't tremendous guilt and trauma and fear and anger. But ultimately, most Israelis go to that one side because the thought is the win-win will be if we truly, truly have a victory, a clear victory over Hamas, then we will also free the hostages. And if I can add one more thing, part of the problem is, is that you're dealing with an evil organization which used mass rape, mass torture, maiming, murder as its great moment. This was the greatest moment in Hamas history. I'm sorry to say, but in many ways, Palestinians describe it as the greatest moment in Palestinian history. And I think it's actually miraculous that we got 100 or so out back in November. But look, what happened? There were 16 women and at least two children who were supposed to be freed. And our fear, frankly, is that the reason why they didn't free those women is because when we would just see them on television, we would know the unspeakable things that were done to them. And they frankly wanted to continue to use them in their disgusting way. And so we're not dealing with honest brokers. The most important thing I think right now in any negotiation is, first of all, every single one of the hostages has to be accounted for. We need proof of life. We should demand Red Cross visits. And they should be freed immediately. None of the salami tactics of 10 at a time. You want to play with bodies and hold them for longer to kind of keep Israel honest for a long ceasefire. I'm okay with that. But the hostages must be freed immediately. Everyone must be accounted for or no deal. I'm going to widen the spectrum. You talked about, you know, the Palestinians saying this is the greatest time, maybe of the the greatest event of Palestinian history. You know, and then we have the West, mainly the U.S. administration under Joe Biden that are kind of pushing for maybe even a unilateral coerced peace plan. What do you think? I mean, everybody knows that there is an attempt to make some kind of peace plan. Um, What do you think the Israeli public thinks about that? I think there's a huge disconnect between the conversation going on in Washington, the conversation going on in international circles, and the conversation going on around uh, Israeli dinner tables and around uh, the salon while watching television. Let's look at two different dimensions of it. Ceasefire. I keep on saying, I'm all in favor of a ceasefire. Let Hezbollah start with a ceasefire. Let the Houthis start with a ceasefire. Let Hamas have a ceasefire and free the hostages. Then come to us. But, you know, let's go back. I have a problem. I'm a historian. So I remember that in 2009, in 2012, in 2014, every time up through 2021, that Israel tried to defend itself when the problem was more manageable, when the problem wouldn't have been so heinous, everybody else ceasefire, ceasefire. I haven't heard one serious policymaker, except for Hillary Clinton on The View, say, hey, wait a minute. I called for a ceasefire before. The international community pressured Israel to have a ceasefire before. And as she pointed out, there was a ceasefire operative on October 6th. So slow down. Take responsibility. That's the first half. The second half is every time somebody throws the slogan, two-state solution at me, I say, great, just do me one favor. Update the two-state solution from the 1990s with three inconvenient facts. Fact number one, the Oslo peace process, which was an attempt at a two-state solution, led to over a thousand deaths at the hand of terrorists. Two, the disengagement from Gaza, which was a full disengagement from all of Gaza, led to the recent murder and maiming of 1,200 plus. And three, Palestinian public opinion polls themselves show that 89% of the Arab world is against what they call normalization, 
and most Palestinians are against the two-state solution. If you use a phrase that's just a meaningless phrase from the 1990s, then own that. And you're just throwing out a phrase like, the check is in the mail. If you want to make it a meaningful offer, and if you want to be a morally serious person, let alone a politically thoughtful person, then update your call for a two-state solution with three very inconvenient facts. Okay, I want to narrow in a little more on Israeli society. So, you know, nowadays there's a lot of talk about the unity of the people of Israel, of course, as a common enemy has attacked us. In your opinion, after the end of the war, and the war will end at one point, will the public in Israel be more united and less divided than we were on the 6th of October? What do you think? I I won't predict. I'll only say I hope so. I, I know that there's a conversation going on in the army, among the reservists, and again in most Israeli homes saying we cannot go back to October 6th. We cannot make those same mistakes again because, first of all, we were disrespecting one another. We weren't listening to one another. We were demonizing one another. And we broadcast weakness and a kind of green light to our enemy. And look what happened. So just as I say on the two-state solution, if you can't learn from your mistakes, then shame on you. We all make mistakes. That's excusable. Refusing to learn from your mistakes is inexcusable. The problem is that we have two powerful forces They keep on pulling us back to October 6th, the media and the current lineup of politicians on both sides. They are addicted to what we call in Hebrew pilug, polarization, the division. They are addicted to a politics of demonization. Just today on a WhatsApp, I shared an article that I'd written uh, in the Jerusalem Post with a group of like 10, 15, not some friends, some colleagues. And it was about the, the, the three, the three groups I talk about. Who are against Bibi now? There's the the longtime I call them Tel Avivis Plus who have hated Bibi. They're the ones who were burnt out by Bibi over the course of the last ten years, and uh, until October six, were also in the, the anti Bibi camp. And then there's this third new group who, since October seventh, are fed up with Bibi. And rather than saying, "Oh, you know, Gil, we shouldn't talk about politics, even in that kind of analytic way," instead, one person responded, "Oh, that's so good for the pro Palestinian media." And I thought to myself. This is exactly the problem. You want to have an intellectually serious conversation with me? You want to shame me and say, oh, let's not talk about something that's divisive? I'm fine with that. You want to say I'm wrong? That's I'm fine with that. But immediately going to demonization, immediately accusing me of being a traitor, that's the tick of right camp. The tick of the left camp is to immediately go to this kind of harsh, critical, the sky is falling, all or nothing kind of demonization of the right. And I'm watching it. I'm watching my friends who since October 7th were pro-BB before October 7th, are fed up with BB. And the more the left wing uses the hostage issue and pushes in a way that shows disrespect for BB's base, they're re-energizing BB's base. So I'm seeing both sides not only listen, not only fail to listen to the public, but also be absolutely self-destructive. If you want to really change politics, then figure out how to change politics. I think we need to hear from our reservists. I, I wrote a column saying that um, I, I have a new candidate for prime minister, Idan Ameri, the great folk singer, a great Israeli uh, singer. Why? Because two things. One is he showed tremendous heroism. He could have spent the whole war singing, which would have been an important gift of morale. And we've seen how people like David Broza have done over 100 concerts in an extraordinary way, informally, formally. But no, he went with the Hevra. He went with his buddies and he fought. And unfortunately, he was badly injured. And even before he was injured, he put out these tweets and these Instagram posts saying, we've got to be united. And in the half hour pr- press conference he gave when he finally went home to the hospital and we wish him a riff we wish him well because he's still in recovery. He said, we cannot go back. And so I need someone like that 
someone with charisma, someone with a little bit of a Hollywoody line, but most important, someone who understands that we can disagree, but we can't be disagreeable. We have to love, learn to love one, love one another, work with one another, and get out of this mess together. And for our listeners that uh, that uh, you mentioned the fact that he was a singer, uh, most of our listeners will know him from Fauda. And let me let me expand on that a little bit too. I, I know that prophecy is for the fools and in the Middle East especially. And yet I'd love to hear your opinion on what you think Israeli society looks like after the war. You started already by saying we need unity, but what do you think is actually, what do you think could happen with Israeli society post-war? The strangest thing about what we've experienced these last couple of months is that all of us have endured the worst days of our lives, the most terrifying moments in our lives, unspeakable traumas. We've watched our kids also endure all kinds of things and our, our heroic soldiers see things that they shouldn't have to see, mourn friends whom they should have grown old with. It, it's been horrible. And yet, with all that horror, almost in a certain kind of way with physics, all that negativity has also brought up tremendous positivity. I think many of us have also seen remarkable acts of heroism, which saved the country on October 7th, remarkable acts of generosity, which includes our friends from abroad who didn't get the memo that when there's a war, you run away. But no, as good Jews, they run toward and non-Jews who are also part of the pro-Israel community and they embrace us. It's been extraordinary. And there's a kind of spiritual power that we've also touched. And more and more people I know are saying, look, we've shown that we know how to die together and we know how to fight together. Can we learn to live together? And so the optimist in me, the Zionist in me, the dreamer in me, but also the person who has gone through this extraordinary roller coaster ride of every day, tremendous ups and tremendous downs, high highs and, high and low lows, really believes that we can touch that goodness. Because I think on October 7th and every day since, we were reminded about how lucky we are to live in this moment with all its trauma, how lucky we are to be in Israel, to live in Israel, and to be a part of this great adventure. Because if we wanted to, we could leave. The airlines are functioning. You could pack up your bags and go. But instead, 200,000 Israelis came back, many of them to go straight to the reserves, like my son who was in Asia on a trip. And we know so many stories like that. And so it's hard for me to believe that we're going to allow all that goodness and all that spiritual power to disappear. But we need leaders who are willing to stoke that, willing to nurture that, not willing to squelch that. Yo, that was. I, I want to end with this because I think you, you ended on a very positive note. So I wanted to thank you. Very eloquent, very thoughtful. Thank you very much. Great being with you. And uh, I wish you and your family just safety and inspiration. And I wish you the same. My next guest is Julie Barrett. Julie is the author of The Bible on Location, Off the Beaten Track in Ancient and Modern Israel. She's also a veteran tour educator who works with Jewish and Christian groups. Julie is also a longtime colleague and a friend. And I wanted to reach out to you, Julie, and ask you some similar questions that I asked Gil Troy, who was also on this episode. Um, and I guess the first question I want to ask you is, how do you gauge, how do you describe the national mood as of now in Israel? I'm um, speaking to your friends, your colleagues, your family. Well, you know, we get our, we get our information from lots of different sources. My daughter, uh, Shaked, who's 32 years old, has been serving in reserve duty as a medic uh, since October 8th, and she's just finally being released at the end of the month. My son-in-law was in Miluim for a long time. My future son-in-law is just about to get out. Um, when we meet up with friends, that's all we talk about. That's all anybody talks about. Um, there's, there's really no room for um, discussion or, or, or serious thoughts about anything else as long as this 
war is going on. Um, it just has completely um, taken over our existence. So on that note, it's interesting. I just want to uh, ask you something else. What, what are your concerns? I'm talking about you, like even your personal concerns about the future, personal, family, physical, economic, security-wise. I mean, how do you, what are you concerned with now, even as the war winds down, hopefully soon? Look, my, my biggest concern is for the future of this country. Right now, Israel is being led by someone who uh, is not fit to make decisions about the future of this country. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, um, as the leader of this country, is in so many ways responsible for this horrendous catastrophe. And it deeply disturbs me that he continues to sit in the driver's seat and to make decisions that will affect the state of Israel for many, many years to come. That is my biggest concern. That and the, 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 the people in government he surrounded himself with, who are clearly also not fit to lead this country. And it, it causes me to lose sleep every night that the future of Israel is in the hands of people who are irresponsible. That's my greatest fear right now. So on that note, do you think that Israeli society is, will be or already is a different society since October 7th? Do you think October 7th was like a watershed? And it- Unquestionably. We will never, ever go back to the status quo ante. Um, and, and you could see that as a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, when I think, when I think about the, the, the pre-October 7th and post-October 7th, um, Dickens comes to mind in a paraphrase, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. Because in the year preceding the war, this country was tearing itself apart with so much division and divisiveness and provocation and gratuitous hatred within Israeli society. And at least it seems for the time of the war that all that bad blood has completely evaporated. Because we, we have to circle the wagons. We have to be united to fend off this threat to us. And the political differences don't really matter anymore. Now, uh, clearly, they're going to come back into play when the war is over and we have to have elections and we have to decide where we're going after this. But I think this war was a consciousness-searing experience for all of Israeli society in a way that makes people realize that if we keep fighting like this, we don't need our outside enemies to kill us. The, the, the biggest threat is from within. And we have to figure out a way that we can resolve our differences nicely with one another. On that note, you know, there's a slogan in Israel. We all know it. In Hebrew, it's Yachad Nenetzeach, or in English, mm-hmm. it would be together we shall win or, be, or prevail. They also, there's another two words in Hebrew, which is Tumunak Nitzachon. What is our photograph or picture of victory. What do you think would be a picture of victory for Israelis? Is it the death of Sinwar, the head of Hamas? Is it the release of the hostages? What do you think? Look, there is no victory picture. After what happened here, there cannot be a victory. We, we lost big time. But think the final coda to this war is going to be when the last kidnapped person returns to Israel. Because only then can we move forward. Only then can we start to heal. Only then can we start to talk about what's next. Sinwar's death, if we don't get him now, we're going to get him later. They're all, their days are numbered, clearly. And that interests me less. 
Um, if it takes six months or it takes a year, or it takes two years, we'll get them in the end. But those hostages have to be brought back immediately. That's the most, um, uh, the most important thing in the, the, uh, for, uh, for any attempt at a, a victory, if you want to call it that. I wouldn't call it that. So I'm going to make it a little more difficult for you in that case, because there is a dilemma in Israeli public, and there are even polls about this, where some say we must now return all the hostages, even if it means stopping the war altogether, which others claim is no, that's a victory to Hamas. And no, we cannot uh, capitulate and say the war is over as long as the hostages return. Again, how do you gauge on that? You cannot convince me that there is anything more important than bringing those hostages home. We have, you know, despite the fact that we were caught in a terrible moment of weakness militarily, we have a very strong, very creative army. I have no doubt that even if there's some remnant of Hamas left in Gaza after this war is over, that they're going to find some way to deal with it. There's nothing, nothing that's more important than bringing those hostages home. Okay, so I'm going to widen the spectrum a little bit. I know that you were in New York just, uh, just for a short while, but you just landed a couple of days ago. And my question is this. How do you think Israelis, not Americans, how do you think Israelis gauge the anti-Israel demonstrations that are happening all over the world? I think that I think that, that it's upsetting to everybody, but it's not at the top of anybody's priority list right now. When we if you have someone you love who's fighting in Gaza, or if you've been evacuated from your home and you don't know when you're going back, or if you have if you love someone who's being held hostage, then the the negative kickback from the international community is not at the top of the priority list. We have bigger things to worry about. And the fallout is going to be big. We, it is big already. We know that. And again, if the political leadership was more astute and wiser and not worrying about its own political butt, um, I think we would have handled it better. But uh, it's, it's, it's upsetting, but it's right now, it's not the top priority. Okay, so I want one last question to what I want to ask you. Prophecy, I know, is for the fools. And yet, I would love to hear your opinion on what you think Israeli society will look like post-war. It doesn't have to be immediately post-war, but post-war. What do you think? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deign to, to, to make any predictions because we live in such an unpredictable little universe here in the state of Israel. I would like to believe what, what I would hope for, let's put it this way, what I would hope for is there's going to be some kind of a reset in Israeli society that will entail re the reshuffling of the political deck, but more importantly, that will require a rewriting of the contract between the, the state and the citizens. I, I'm hoping that what comes later um, is some form of a movement that will enable us to ensure that Israeli democracy can never be dismantled the way the current government has it intended to. I would like to believe that the ultra-Orthodox uh, will no longer be exempt from military and national service and that they will be co-opted in some way that's agreeable, because clearly we can't do it by force. But if we're going to, again, if we want to look ahead and see a Jewish and democratic Israel, then these are the, the first things that have to happen. Personally, I would also like to see some kind of resolution with the Palestinians. I, I, I don't, I have no faith in them, none whatsoever. But again, if we want to see Israel Jewish and democratic for our children and our grandchildren, we have to separate from them. There's just no two ways about it. And I'm not optimistic about that, but that is what I would like to see 
in the not so distant future. Julie, thank you so much for interviewing. Your thoughts are greatly appreciated. You're welcome, and I hope soon we'll get good news. The prevailing consensus among the general Israeli public, Jewish and Arab, is that Israel was violently thrown into a no-choice war. Israelis feel they are fighting in self-defense against a cruel and inhumane enemy, an enemy that must be eradicated, an enemy that, as far as Israelis are concerned, is doomed to death, as Julie said, sooner or later. Having said that, as the war progresses, and perhaps prolonged, issues will arise that will challenge Israeli society, challenge Israeli resilience. What are these? So first of all, no doubt the biggest challenge is that of the hostages. The fact that Israelis, women and men, old and young, are being held captives by Hamas amplifies the difficult dilemmas facing Israeli society and the decision makers. As time goes by, and as long as the hostages are in captivity, there's a possibility of a blow to the national morale, to the resilience of Israel, to the resilience of Israeli society in support of the war effort. The second is the nature of the war itself and the duration of it. The war against Hamas may last a long time, perhaps many months, with varying degrees of intensity. War is dynamic. It has ups and downs. It has achievements, but also malfunctions. Both achievements and malfunctions will influence the national mood. In general, one can assume that the more clear, tangible, and significant the military achievements are on the ground, the more public support will be maintained. But less achievements, a prolonged war, the standing still of the troops, certainly if it is accompanied by many casualties, will also influence public support. The third are the evacuees from the Gaza Strip and in the north. As time passes, evacuees are losing their patience. They are publicly expressing their hardship. They have not been or even seen their homes in months. We're talking roughly 70,000 evacuated from the Gaza area and an additional roughly 61,000 residents from 43 communities evacuated from the north near the Lebanese border. Altogether, that makes up 130,000. Once again, in the long run, the fact that Israelis are evacuated from their own homes possibly undermines the national mood. Then there are civil challenges. The lessons to be learned from the events of October 7th in the Gaza area and the evacuation of tens of thousands of civilians from dozens of communities in northern Israel created a difficult challenge for the return to normality. Unless the security reality in southern Lebanon is fundamentally changed, that normality will not continue. This change may necessitate an extensive, perhaps all-out war with Hezbollah. Such a war is expected to be very difficult, also for the civilian front throughout Israel. Israel's national infrastructures may suffer great damage, and hence the entire economy. Such a long and complex war, especially if it develops simultaneously with the continuation of the fighting on Gaza Strip, can also affect Israeli morale. The national and personal economy, a long war, certainly on two fronts, or more is accompanied by high prices for the economy, for individuals, and for families. Expenditures for the fighting itself are very high. Hundreds of thousands of conscripts, that's the Miluin, and evacuees are not working. Their return to normalcy in educational institutions and workplaces is slow, and delays in supply chains in Israel and abroad may produce severe hardships. These hardships may also reflect in the erosion of, of the war effort. Now, we also have to look at the government. Since October 7th, much criticism has been voiced over the failed management of parts of the government ministries. Recently, some offices have shown a slow recovery, but this is still far from satisfying the needs of the public in this challenging period. The phenomenon contributes to the feeling of frustrations among many who need systematic solutions and specific government assistance. 
politics. The leading slogan, again, as I said before, together we shall win, together we shall prevail, may be found hollow in the faces of a scenario in which the depolarization in the Israeli public will rise again. Warning signs of this are already visible, indicating that the vision and identity politics are still alive and kicking beneath the surface. Continued anxiety, uncertainty, daily difficulties and frustration in the absence of quick military achievements may accumulate and deepen the rift within Israelis. And then there's a national context. At the moment, Israel still receives very significant support from Western powers and first and foremost from the United States. All this despite subjective and often fake anti-Israel media reports. Again, a prolonged war will likely lead to external pressure on Israel to slow down or curb the military move. The Israeli people are strong and they're very determined. And we will mobilize all national community, family, and personal resources and rebuild a state and society. But once again, it is together, together we shall prevail. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode and all other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all podcast media sources such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.